Today we continue our study in our sermon series, The Parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And today we are studying in Luke 12, verse 13 to 21, which is one of the most famous parables that Jesus taught that has only been recorded in the, the Gospel of Luke. And it has to do with covetousness. So we look briefly at this text in our series on the Ten Commandments a couple of years back. And I think the Lord is going to use this parable this morning to help us learn afresh about His message concerning covetousness for us today. Last Friday we studied Psalm 27 and the title of my message was, What is Your One Thing? So I was tempted to skip this psalm because we've already looked at it, but I don't believe in coincidences. And the Lord is certainly teaching us a very valuable lesson from His Word today. One of the many things that we have learned during this coronavirus is that our security is not to be found in material things. Only Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. And many people have lost their jobs. Or many people's salaries have been cut in half or even more, forcing us to realize how temporary and foolish it is to put our faith and our trust in anything else but Christ. I said last week that the spiritual reality for many people is that this one thing is not the Lord. And the danger in that reality is that this one thing begins to control our hearts and begins to control our thoughts and what we do and how we respond. And it even influences the words that we, we speak and the choices and the actions that we make. And our one thing will become the thing that shapes our hearts and directs our responses to our relationships and all of the situations that we find ourselves in on a daily basis. And if the Lord isn't our one thing, the thing that is our one thing will become our functional Lord. And I think this functional Lord has been pulled out from many of our feet during this coronavirus pandemic. And Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church and he explains that covetousness is really idolatry. Because you're worshipping stuff. And stuff isn't God. And when anyone worships anything that isn't the one true God, they're committing idolatry. So covetousness becomes a way that even believers are tempted to sin. And if this is not removed from our hearts and from our desires and, and from our souls, it can ruin us, it can destroy us. So for all these reasons, it's important that Jesus teach us again on this subject of covetousness. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 12, we're going to be reading from verse 13 to 21. The title of my message is the parable of the rich fool. So Luke, Luke 12 verse 13 to verse 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, 
Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, pray with me this morning before we go into the study. Father, we ask that your spirit would please teach us this morning. We pray that your spirit would give us a heart of humility, a heart of flesh, and not a heart of stone, that we would resist your word today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond in the proper way. Lord, that we would see where these idols are in our hearts and we'll be able to identify them with the help of the Spirit. So I pray for your help this morning as I teach. I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't allow any of your words to fall to the ground that you have for us this morning and that your Spirit would produce fruit that would last for eternity. So we pray for your blessings upon our time of worship around your word. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story this week that was actually printed as a, as a letter in a newspaper column. And the writer wrote about a man who earned a very good living, but he refused to spend that money on anything. And when he was dying, he said to his wife, I want you to promise me one thing. Promise me that when I am dead, you will take my money and put it in my casket so that I can take it all with me. And amazingly, the wife agreed to do as she was asked. But after her husband died, her friend saw her put something into the casket, into the casket and asked what she put in there. And she told her friend her husband's request and how she agreed to it. And her friend was aghast. She couldn't believe this woman would do this. And the friend asked her how she would live, how she would survive. And, and she replied, well, I promised him, and a promise is a promise. But I should be fine and able to live comfortably unless he finds a way to cash a check in heaven. I'm sure many of you have probably heard the joke about why we never see a hearse or a limousine with a trailer hitch on it. Because when we die, we cannot take it with us. We cannot take the boat. We cannot take the camper or anything else with us. And you can't take it with you. That familiar phrase is one that actually sums up fairly well this parable that we are studying this morning. It helps us to think about what we are focusing on and whether or not it is consistent with the 
eternal mindedness that Jesus wants us to adopt. With the death of my mom, I've not stopped thinking about heaven. And this week, someone sent me a link to a music video of Shane and Shane singing, Is He Worthy? Um, when I got that, I just burst out crying, thinking about my mom and all the saints in heaven singing this song together to the one who is worthy, to the one who is worthy of all of our blessings and all of our honor and all of the glory. And heaven has been much closer to, to me this week than before. But then a strange thing happened. After a few hours later, I traveled to the mall and I couldn't help myself looking at all the cool cars that were parked in the parking lot. Maybe you can relate. Our thoughts and, and, our, and our efforts can, can often reveal preoccupations in our, in our hearts and in, in our lives. And we are instructed in, in 1 John to not love the world or the things that are in it. And this world, this flesh, and the pride of life are all ways that the devil wants to tempt us. And he wants to keep our eyes off eternity and on this materialistic society that begs for our affection. And the devil is fierce, but he is easily defeated when we resist him by the Spirit of God as Jesus triumphed over him. So my first point this morning is from verse 13. We see here the setting. We see the background. As the request comes out to the Lord, tell my brother. So in this passage, Jesus has been talking about the, the providence of God and teaching his disciples to fear God and not to fear man, confessing him before all others, and then the Lord would reward them by confessing and acknowledging them before the angels in heaven. And in the middle of this amazing sermon, in this amazing teaching, in this large crowd, a man raises his hand and, and he says, so, right, I have a, a question about my family inheritance. He completely disregards what Jesus has been teaching. And he hasn't even been listening to any of the words that Jesus has been saying. But we see that this man recognizes Jesus as a, as a teacher. Not as the teacher, not as the Messiah. So he requests Jesus to respond. Not as a, as, a, as a teacher, but apparently as the teachers of the day would have, the, the other Pharisees. And what the man wants is a, a judge. He doesn't really want a teacher of God's word. He wants a judge. He wants this case settled between him and his, his brother. And I think that this brother was present as part of the crowd during this discussion. And all Jesus would have to have done was to pronounce in this man's favor and the case would have been settled but jesus doesn't do this the whole time this man has been thinking about himself and how he could win his family inheritance he's not listening to the teaching of god's word it's a very interesting exchange that happens here this man doesn't say to jesus look we we have an inheritance dispute in our family 
and I would like you, Jesus, to settle it. Um, he doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He sees him just as a, as a normal uh, Jewish uh, rabbi. But it wasn't uncommon for rabbis to settle disputes um, during this time. Um, it made sense. The rabbis, they, they were supposed to have known the, the word of God. The rabbis were supposed to be men of integrity. The rabbis were supposed to be concerned for the spiritual well-being of their congregations. And they were people who would be trusted to, to arbitrate and settle a dispute. So it made sense that people would go to them and ask for them to arbitrate. But think about this. Think about this setting. Think about this, this background. This man is not in the presence of just an ordinary rabbi. He is in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he could have asked Jesus anything. And the only thing that he wants Jesus to do is to settle a family dispute over inheritance. What does it say about that man's character? What does it say about that man's soul at this particular time? I think that very question shows what the man really thought was important. It revealed, it exposed him as to what was really in his heart at that time. The very question shows that this man had upside down what was really important. And Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus, our, our mediator, Jesus, our savior, is in his presence. And he wants a family dispute over money to, to be sorted out. A very sad, a sad situation. When you think about the situation in light of the enormity of who Jesus is, it becomes even more sad. And I think that is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make to his disciples here as he teaches them about covetousness. But I think before we judge this man, let's remember that Scripture applies to all of us as well. And I said earlier, what our thoughts and our hearts are preoccupied with often reveal something about what our hearts treasure. About what our hearts treasure. And what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What's on your mind? What's your mind focused on? And your thoughts can reveal your preoccupations. When you put more effort into obtaining the blessings of this life than you show interest in laying hold of things eternal, it can reveal an excessive desire for the things of this world. And your conversation can reveal your heart. And when all your conversation is always wrapped up in the things of this world, what we've just bought, what we want to buy, what we're going to buy, what, what someone else has, it reveals something about the desires of our heart. And when we are willing to part with heavenly blessings in order to obtain earthly, temporary pleasures, it shows us something about the priorities in our heart. And I think all of us can relate to this man here in this parable. But my second point is from verse 14 to verse 15. We see here the problem and we see a principle. Look at what Jesus says. 
In response to this man's question, Jesus says in verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So that word translated as covetousness in verse 15 can also be translated as greed. And it refers to a, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or, or to possess more things than, um, than other people have, um, irrespective of whether we need them or not. And notice the, the sin that Jesus identifies in this passage is not wealth, it's not having stuff, but rather coveting stuff, rather the sin of greed. That is the sin here. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, really tells us the same thing. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice there, the love of money. It's not necessarily money, but it is the love of money. And Jesus is highlighting uh, a violation of the Tenth Commandment, which, which tells us in Exodus 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So the Bible warns us about covetousness. And here Jesus is warning us in this parable as well. Even in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it tells us, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. So it's the sin of greed. It's the sin of coveting something that we don't have. I think the reason Jesus is warning against covetousness and, and greed is because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We see that word abundance in verse 15. And in this sense, it means a surplus or an excess of stuff. And Jesus is teaching that having more stuff does not add any value to our lives. It doesn't add anything to our lives. Maybe just clutter. But he wants us to be content with what we have. I think this desire really applies to all people, rich and poor, everybody from all spheres of life. And the rich are, are tempted to want even more of what they already have. While the poor, on the other hand, are tempted to want things that they do not have. And every one of us needs to be on guard against covetousness in our hearts. Covetousness is a greedy desire for the things of this world, the things that are temporary, the things that will rust and be destroyed. It is an excessive love of the things of the world. Covetousness is a very subtle sin. And I think it's often very difficult to detect in our own hearts. 
I mean, I don't know anybody who's ever come up to me and said, Gareth, I struggle with the sin of covetousness. Nobody has ever confessed that, that sin to me or please help me with this, with this sin. Help me to overcome this sin. But I think covetousness is more common than we would like to admit. In fact, I don't know of a sin that is more persistent than covetousness. Just examining my own heart after that visit to the mall, I realize it is very much a sin that we need to be careful of. It's very subtle and very difficult to detect. So how can we pray? How can we pray, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven when we have these other idols on our hearts, in the throne of our hearts? How can we say that our hearts are, are set on things above when in fact our desires are set on things below? And we try and hold these two things together and, and over time I think we become good at disguising our, our real hearts and pretending to be something or someone that we're not. So covetousness is a dangerous sin because it is an enemy of grace. And when our hearts are set on what we don't have, but rather what we want, it really takes away our joy in that which really matters. And think about this statement. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has what he or she really needs. God promises to provide for his children. So why then are we so discontent at times? Why are we not happy with what the Lord has given to us? Why are we always looking at what other people have and coveting it? It's this sin, this prevalent sin of greed and covetousness. And we need to protect our hearts from falling into this sin of discontentment. And at the end, and as a result, end up losing our joy and our eternal perspective that Jesus wants us, that Jesus commands us, to have. After my mom's funeral, we've had to go through the, the horrible job of sorting out her estate. And we learned that my mom didn't have enough money in her estate to qualify her to even pay the death taxes in South Africa. So my mom was, was not wealthy. She was by many people's standards poor. But she was rich in Christ. She had this joy because her heart was not fixed on the things of this world. But I wonder what would people say you were preoccupied with? And how would your children testify to what demanded your heart's affections? And we see the Lord teaching us here that life does not consist in things. Joy is not gained from the temporary pleasures of this world. It does not even consist in having many things. And so Jesus tells this parable to really spell out this principle. And that is my next point in verse 3. Sorry, in verse 16 to verse 21. We see here the parable and the, the punchline. So read with me from verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, 
What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here the principle is explained in this parable that the Lord gives to those who are listening to his disciples. But you may ask, why would the Lord have told this particular parable to the disciples that were with him? We know the disciples were not rich. They were not wealthy people. Uh, they didn't have big houses. They didn't have fancy chariots or even fancy designer clothes. So why would he tell this parable to his disciples? What would have the temptation have been? Well, I think one of their temptations might have been to, to imagine or think in their own minds, you know, Lord, if I could only have what he had, I would be content. I would be content. And one of the temptations might have been to think, well, a person like that wouldn't have any trouble with covetousness. A person who has those things, he wouldn't want other things. But the point is, whether we're rich or whether we are poor, we all struggle with this temptation of covetousness. And Jesus shows this man who, who has a lot, but he takes his joy from the stuff. He doesn't take his joy from the Lord. He takes his joy from the stuff that he has and not from the riches of God. And I think this farmer here in this parable, he represents all humans. All of us who are seduced by all kinds of greeds, no matter who we are, whether we are doctors, whether we are secretaries, whether we're engineers, whether we're teachers, whether we're lawyers or nurses or mechanics or students, it doesn't matter. And God had blessed this farmer, and we notice here he didn't see that blessing was from the Lord. He doesn't recognize that. But God had sent just the right amount of rain, and he had sent the right amount of sunshine. He had kept all of the the pests off his farm. So the farmer at the end had a massive crop. And the farmer did not cheat anyone, nor did he abuse his employees. He was successful in many ways, but he was not satisfied. He was successful, but he was not satisfied. And we see here he was looking for joy and satisfaction in other things, in more things, in an excess of things that he didn't have. And the man did not recognize that what he had was a gift from the Lord. And he thought that his security would come not from, not from the Lord who had already provided these things for him, but his security would come from a bigger bank account, from a greater security if he had more things, if he had more wealth, so he built bigger barns. 
He built bigger barns so he could store more of his crops, so he could have more of the things that would make money for him. But the danger here was that he missed the point. You know, he was being logical, I think. You know, building bigger barns in and of itself was not a bad idea. But there was no thought of stewardship here. There was no understanding that, that he was a steward of God's blessings. That what he had was from the Lord. And that he was to look after that and to use it wisely and to share those blessings with, with others. And the problem with this man is that at the end of the day he was selfish. He was greedy. He was self-absorbed. And all he could think about really was himself. He had no thought for God. He had no thought for, for other people. And the rich man goes on and, and he says in verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And one commentator, he says the following about this rich man here. He says, this man thought that he had a storage problem but what he really had was a spiritual problem he lived his life as if god did not exist his life revolved around himself maybe he even went to church he may even have given financially some of his money to the church but his life his priorities and his actions did not reflect that he lived in a right relationship to god i agree with that i think that is so accurate but what about you this morning? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living your life for God? Listen to what God said to the rich man in verse 20. He says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God calls this man a fool. And if God is calling this man this name, let's pay attention. Because the Bible says that we mustn't be foolish. The Bible says we need to be wise. We need to know what the will of God is. But God called this man a fool because he lived his life as if there was no God. And the man thought that he had many years to live. The man thought he was his own God, in control of his own destiny, in control of his own future. But that very night, God called his soul to meet with him. And the rich man made all of his plans for the future, for this temporary world. But he did nothing to prepare for eternity. And Jesus ends his parable with a practical application. He says in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the lesson here is not very difficult to understand. A fool lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But the wise person lays up treasures in heaven and is rich toward God. A pastor friend of mine was telling me 
how the financial giving in his church had dropped since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And we all knew this was inevitable because people would lose their jobs or they would have their, their salaries cut. But then he told me about a conversation he had with an attendee in his church who had not lost his job. And he said that he was not going to give to the church because he was not getting anything in return. He was unhappy that he would not be able to receive the donuts that they normally gave out on a Sunday. There was no more coffee. There was no more children's ministry for um, his kids or any uplifting music that he could enjoy. All that there was, he said to the pastor, was a makeshift service on a computer screen that was not enough for, for him to give his money to the church. There is so much wrong there with that statement, isn't it? And this church goer, he had a transactional expectation and I think he was exposed as a, as a consumer. Giving because only what he would get in return. And that's not how it should be. This less than ideal situation that we find ourselves in, the new normal for church shouldn't be an excuse for us to, to stop giving to the work of the Lord. Just because you're not being served as well as you might have been a, a few months ago, church is not about consumers being served. Church is about Christians serving one another. It's about Christians sacrificially building up the body of Christ, even when it is costly, even when it is inconvenient, even when it is uncomfortable. This lesson, ideal new normal for church should not be an excuse to stop giving. We see what the Lord says here. A fool lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But the wise person lays up treasure in heaven and is rich toward God. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, we are rich toward God when His, when his glory is our highest goal. And Jesus is saying here, be rich towards me. Desire my glory above everything else. And I've asked the children this many times, and I've asked you this many times. What is the chief end of man? And we know the Westminster Confession tells us, Catechism tells us, the chief goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Those two go hand in hand. We cannot enjoy God if our affections are on the things of this world. We cannot enjoy God if we are not satisfied with God, if we are not glorifying God, if we are not being rich towards God. And that's the kind of wealth that Jesus wants His disciples to have. He wants them to value the, the riches of God above the, all the, the worldly possessions that the world has to offer us. He wants us to value what we have in Christ above everything else. He wants us to value what we have in the gospel, eternal life with God Himself in perfect unity, in perfect peace. He wants us to value what we have in the lavish grace of God that has been poured out on us for the forgiveness of our sins. He wants us to value that more than the things of this world. He wants us to long for God. 
He wants us to long for grace. He wants us to long for the, the glories of heaven more than the things of this earth, the temporary things of this earth. It's so easy to lose perspective in the middle of this madness of our lives, isn't it? Before the coronavirus, our days were filled with so much busyness, so much projects and people and work and wish lists and homes and holidays that we could easily fail to distinguish the important from the urgent. But perhaps this crisis is reminding us that we need to be rich towards God. Perhaps it's helping us to distinguish between what's meaningful and what is meaningless. And perhaps we're starting to learn that, that death is a reality and that we cannot take anything with us. And perhaps the coronavirus is teaching us to keep our eyes fixed on eternity and not on the, the temporary things of this world. And perhaps we're starting to learn that that our one thing really does need to be Christ. So let me conclude this morning with one last application. The rich fool, I think he was correct to live his life in the light of the future. But he was foolish in his concept of what the, the future held. And he assumed that he would be alive in the future to enjoy the, the things of the world, the things that he had stored up. <laughs> and his grasp of the future did not include God nor the, the kingdom of God. And his future was entirely temporary. His life that was oriented on earthly things, on, on sensual things, on selfish things. And one's view of the future is not a small matter. And the, theologians call the, the doctrine of the future eschatology, a big word there. But esch, eschatology is vital to godly living. We know that the prophets of old in the Old Testament told the people of God about what the future held because they knew that people govern their lives in the present by what they know will happen in the future. And our faith focuses on the future, does it not? It focuses on the, the promises of God for the future. Even while we're going through difficult times, even through the present pain, even during the temporary persecution, and even in death, in order to experience God's promised blessings in the future. And the expression here, eat drink and be merry is from this text and this text and this expression is is based upon the rich fool's perception of what the future held and basically the rich fool planned to eat drink and be merry because he believed that that he would live for a long time but ironically others will eat drink and be merry because they believe that there, there is no future. So our idea of what the future is matters. And for the Christian, our view of the future is what enables us to die to ourselves now. 
knowing that we will eat and drink and be merry in the future. It allows us to see the temporary struggles of this world as temporary because we know what the future holds. We know that the kingdom of God is infinitely more precious and more valuable than anything that, that we possess or could possess in this world. And we know that it is Jesus who satisfies our longings more than people and more than possessions, more than what this world has to offer. And I think coronavirus is reshaping our journey, but it's not shaping our end. It hasn't affected our end at all. And when we finally get where we're going, we're going to enter a, a future city that will last forever. Hebrews tells us that in chapter 13, verse 14. The Bible says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And the servants of God in that new Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, will reign forever and ever with our sovereign King. And that future, that final destination, hasn't been diminished in the, the least by this coronavirus. It can't be, because it's not, it's not here, it's in heaven, our future hope. And we have an inheritance. Peter tells us in his letter, in chapter 1, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept for us in heaven. Praise be to the Lord. And I know that this life has its share of trials and suffering and difficulty. But I also know that a future awaits us that is certain, and that is full of joy, where there is no more pain, where there are no more tears. And that future is secure for believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that future has no more fear, and it has no more anxieties. And Jesus is teaching us in this parable to keep our eyes fixed on eternity, fixed on heaven and fixed on Christ. While we're on this earth, live for Christ. Our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Our lives exist for the glory of God. And the Bible says that Jesus is the life. The Bible says that true life is to know the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that to live is Christ. So don't waste your life. Do you know Jesus Christ savingly? Do you live for Christ? Or do you live for the things of this world, the temporary pleasures of this world? Well, if the Lord is speaking to you today, I would urge you to call upon the name of the Lord and repent of your sin of covetousness and put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the secure promise of eternity with God forever and ever. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise and this timely reminder, Lord, that our joy and our delight is not in the things of this world. 
And it's so easy now, Lord, to say that. Well, that's a good thing because around us during this time, during this coronavirus, there's not much that we can joy and uh, we can find joy in or delight in because so much has been taken away from us. But Lord, please help us. May your spirit remind us when things go back to normal, when we forget, remind us, Lord, that our joy is not in the things of this world. Our satisfaction is not in his temporary possessions. So Lord, we thank you for the lessons that you are teaching us. But we pray, please, Spirit of God, make sure that we don't forget these lessons. That we will take your word and apply it to our own situation. And maybe still people loving the things of this world, unable to keep their eyes on you, unable to fix their, their joy in heaven. So we pray, Lord, please, Help us to live a life that pleases you while we still have air in our lungs, while we still have a heartbeat. May we not waste the opportunities that you give us to declare our glorious God to those around us who are dying in this and who are lost without hope. We do thank you today for the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Lord, that eternity awaits us and we will sing with the angels and we will sing with the saints you are worthy 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 you are holy 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 and we look forward to that day even so come lord jesus we ask this prayer in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen